It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this message is called Special Christians versus Faithful Christians. And the subtitle or another way of saying that would be Embracing the Epic Calling on Our Lives. And some of you have heard me talk about Christian heroes. I tend to weave Christian heroes into most of my messages. And there's this tendency that we so often have when we hear stories about Christian heroes to label them as special Christians. And so what I want to do in this message is kind of debunk the myth of special Christians and cast a vision for the calling that God has given each one of us, which is to be faithful Christians. So in the 1950s, that was a time when a lot of notable, world-changing American Christians began to really make their mark on history. So we have ministries like Wycliffe Bible Translators and the Navigators and Youth for Christ and Mission Aviation Fellowship coming to full bloom in in that time period. Billy Graham's Crusades beginning to really make an impact on the culture. And then, of course, we have a really significant ministry, missionary movement to the unreached people in New Guinea. So there's a lot of spiritual hunger. There are a lot of people stepping out to embrace that call to live radically uh, for Jesus. And a lot of times that does happen post-war because people are kind of reminded of what's really important. So here we are, it's about a decade after the war ends and there's this renewed spiritual hunger and there's people saying, I'm willing to give up my life to go all in for Jesus Christ. And so God's really doing a lot of things through all of these all of these missionary movements. I want to focus on two specific stories today from this time period, and these might be familiar stories to you, but I feel like for me, even though I grew up hearing about these two stories, I find it really refreshing every now and then to really revisit them and be freshly reminded of what God did, because it's so extraordinary. The first story is about the five missionaries who gave their lives to reach an unreachable group of people in Ecuador, known as the Aka Indians. The second story is about David Wilkerson, who was just a simple country preacher who left everything in order to reach another unreachable group of people, which was the drug-addicted gang members of inner-city New York City. And the first story, I'm just going to unpack it. I found it very hard to summarize this first story about Jim Elliott and the other missionaries because it is it is an extraordinary story and there are so many amazing layers to it. So I feel like I'm not really going to do it justice. But there's a documentary called Beyond the Gates of Splendor that really enunciates the story quite well. I can't fully recommend it because... They, they show a lot of tribal footage that, they, you know, it would have been really easy to blur some things out, but they didn't, so it's a little immodest, but overall the, uh, the message is truly so powerful. But here's just a summary of, of what I gleaned from that documentary and lots of other books that I have read. So the Warani, there's a lot of different spellings of this. There you can spell it with an H, you could not have the R in there, so I just pulled one of the many spellings that are out there. But this is a group of people, also they used to be referred to as the Alca Indians, and they lived in the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador. They were very secretive, people didn't really know a lot about them. But their territory was known to those who did live nearby as the heart of darkness, because anyone who ventured too deep into that forest never returned. It sounds like a 
a creepy like fairy tale, you know, like venture too close and you will never return. And this was real life. If you if you step too close into Alca territory, you would never be seen again. And they were considered people who have studied them, the anthropologists who have studied their culture since, have declared them to be among the most violent people in the entire world. They lived by one rule, and this was a rule that the little kids in their tribe found out from the age of two or three years old, that you either spear and live or be speared and die. So they, they were just a culture based upon violence, and it seemed to be very, it was very subjective. If they got angry with someone, they would spear them to death. If they were just in a bad mood one day, they would spear someone to death. They would, sometimes there are even stories of people spearing people just out of a, to be funny, you know, as a joke. So it was just the violence that ruled them was absolutely hard to wrap your mind around. So they had blood feuds, they had vendettas that went on generation after generation. The documentary that I watched said, for five generations, six out of every 10 Warani deaths were homicides. So they were literally wiping each other out through violence. They would kill any outsiders who came too, too close, and so very little was known about them. Oil companies had tried to set up their stations near this territory, but they had to abandon their stations. So you can imagine these like big oil companies with all this money, and they had you know security guards and everything, and they still had to abandon their stations because so many of their employees were being killed by the Alcos who would kind of sneak out in the middle of the night and attack them. And so in the midst of this, this drama, this ongoing crisis, this incredible violence, this tribe that was threatening to wipe itself out through violence and nobody could go into that territory, here were five young American missionaries who had a passion to somehow reach this unreachable group of people. And their names were Ed McCauley, Roger Udarian, Nate Saint, Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott. So I'm just going to summarize because the story is really long. But Nate Saint, who was a pilot for MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, was flying. He had Everyone kind of had known about the Alcas, but nobody kind of knew how to make contact with them or reach them. And he, one day when he was flying his yellow Piper Cub plane over the area, he, he spotted their huts, their houses where they lived. And he then, it sparked the idea that he wanted to bring missionaries in and they wanted to try to make friendly contact with these people and that had never been done before. Nobody else was willing to go near that territory. So he met with the other men. They all had wives and children. They were just beginning their families. They were just starting their missionary lives. And Nate proposed the idea of going in to try to make contact with the Alcas and hopefully bridge the gap so that they could bring the gospel to them. They knew it was extremely extremely dangerous. They all knew they could lose their lives, but they were so exuberant. They were so excited about the possibility of actually breaking through to these unreachable people. And so their wives were supportive and they all flew in. He flew them in one by one and they found this little landing strip that they called Palm Beach. And that's where they camped out to try to make contact. And so they, he then flew over the, the village and he called, sent messages for them to come and meet them at this beach. And after four days, an Alka man and two women appeared. It was not easy for them to understand each other since the missionaries only knew a few Alka phrases. They shared a meal with him and Nate took the man up for a flight in the plane. Can you imagine this man who's never really even seen a plane going for a ride? The missionaries tried to show sincere friendship and asked them to bring others next time. So they're waiting, they're praying, they're hoping for this friendly contact and they camped out on this beach and all the women back at the base were praying and they waited for the other Alcas to return for the next two days. Finally, two women, two Alka women walked out of the jungle on day six. Jim and Pete excitedly jumped into the river and waded over to them. As they got closer, these women did not appear friendly. Jim and Pete almost immediately heard a terrifying cry behind them. 
As they turned, they saw a group of Alka warriors with their spears raised, ready to throw, and within seconds, the warriors threw their spears, killing all the missionaries. After the men were dead, they also speared the plane, ripping apart the seats and the fabric. The next morning, another missionary pilot flew over the beach to look for the men. He saw only the badly damaged plane and felt like they were most likely dead. News quickly spread around the world about the five missing missionaries. A United States search team went to the beach and found the missionaries' bodies and buried them. Their deaths shocked the world. A reporter from Life magazine and other newspapers and magazines swarmed the area to learn what had led to these men's tragic deaths. So in this documentary, Beyond the Gates of Splendor, there were, they interviewed all of the, the widows to describe the last time they ever saw their husbands. And I think most of them knew they probably would never see them again that day that they said goodbye. Marge Saint, Nate Saint's wife, said, Nate left our av- aviation base on Monday afternoon. I can remember getting his clothes ready and sending some extra food. One thought crossed my mind as Nate taxied out from the hangar in front of our house. I wonder if I'll ever see that little airplane taxi out again. And I never did. And then Elizabeth Elliot said, The day came when I saw Jim with his pack on his back, and he opened that door, and he walked out of there and slammed the door behind him, just exuberant because Nate had flown in, and they were going to meet the Alcas. And I thought to myself, chances are I'm not going to see him again. So they all kind of knew this could be it. And yet, as I've told this story in the past, the way these men were described is like little children on Christmas morning. They were so excited because they knew they were exactly where God wanted them to be, and they were willing to give up their lives to make contact to bridge that gap with these people. So the missionary pilot, one of them who helped recover the men's bodies from the river, said they had guns with them, but they had said they would never kill the Alcas, even if they attacked them, because they made the straight statement, they aren't ready for heaven, and we are. When this pilot reported to the wives that their husbands were confirmed to be dead, he said, I sense that these women were just, com- just as committed to this mission as the men were. So they weren't, they were very obviously very grieved and very sad to learn that they were widows and their children were were without fathers, but yet they had already counted the cost. And so it wasn't this shock and devastation. They knew that this is something that they had signed up for and this, this is something God had allowed to happen. So to many people, especially to the secular reporters who were trying to follow the story, it seemed like a senseless waste for these five strong young men who had wives and children to give up their lives without making any headway among the Alcas. But that was not the end of the story. In less than two years, Elizabeth Elliot and her young daughter Valerie and Rachel Saint, who was Nate's sister, were able to move to the Aka village. And this is a really amazing story because a few of the Alka women had fled around that time because of the violence. They came out of the jungle, which was unheard of, and they made contact with these missionary women. And they eventually wanted to go back to their people, but they wanted the women to come with them. And they said, well, do you think they're going to spear us the way they speared our husbands? And they said, no, you're our friends. They're, you won't be spirit. So just on the hope and the prayer that the women could make it in, these two women went in and they had this little girl with them to try to bridge a gap with the Alka people. So can, that takes a lot of, I would say, supernatural courage to make that decision. But when Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot expressed love to those who had killed the men, the Alkas were won through the power of forgiveness. And so, you know, I think a lot of times people saw the tragic deaths of the missionaries and thought that's the end of the story. And they were very, you know, noble that they tried and they died trying. But God was, that was the middle of the story. God had a whole plan to follow that up. And it was through the power of forgiveness 
forgiveness, that these people were one. Many Alcas became Christians. They are now a friendly tribe. Missionaries, including Nate Saint's son and his family, still live and or work among the Warani today. And they're called the Warani, not the Alcas. That was a more of a derogatory term that people used before they knew anything about them. Just It just means savage. But one Warani uh, tribal person said, we were almost down to two people left. And if these two women had not come to us, there would be none of us left at all. So they were so given over to violence. And one of the... One of the uh, other men said, we did badly, badly until they came and brought us God's carvings, and now we walk his trail, which I thought was really powerful. There, there were vendettas that had gone back five generations, and once the gospel came to the Warani, those vendettas di- disappeared in a matter of months, and these were things that had gone back five generations. There was so much healing and restoration that came to this group of people. Now, I talked about in a previous episode that Nate Saint's children were baptized in the same river where their father had been killed by some of the same men who were involved in killing him. Kathy Saint, who was Nate Saint's daughter, described her baptism. This happened when she was in high school. She said, I wanted to be baptized by people who'd had a spiritual influence in my life. So she invited these Warani men who used to be killers, who were now strong Christians, to baptize her. And she said this, I was in the same river where dad's body had been thrown. And on either side of me were two men who in their youth had killed my father. And all I knew was that I really loved these guys. And in the documentary Beyond Gates of Splendor, one of one of Nate Saint's grandsons describes how one of the men who speared his grandfather to death became like a surrogate grandfather to him and even came to the United States for his high school graduation. So God's restoration is so amazing in this story. And the deaths of those five men were part of his story to win this, this group for Christ. A lot of us have heard that famous quote from Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain, what he cannot lose. And I feel like those powerful words were proven so true by these men's choice to lay down their lives to reach the unreachable and the women's choice to go right back in and say, we choose to love and forgive. That is a story that is legendary in recent Christian history. And yet, there's nothing overly special about those men and those women other than the fact that they were fully available to God. Another story that I feel is is similar but very different, but has the same kind of spirit of God working, you can see the same fingerprints of God, and it is David Wilkerson's story. He was a very unlikely missionary to inner-city gangs. He had a very predictable and comfortable life as a pastor in rural Pennsylvania. He was just in a very predictable church with a predictable group of people and kind of just plodding along, just, you know, growing a church. There was nothing that dramatic about his life, and he had had no experience with drug addicts or gang members or anything like that. And so I'm just going to read an excerpt from his book, The Cross and the Switchblade, because I feel like the way his ministry started to the gangs is truly astounding and really applicable to those of us who feel like, oh, that's for special Christians. He said, this whole strange adventure got its start late one night when I was sitting in my study reading Life magazine and turned a page. 
At first glance, it seemed like there was nothing on the page to interest me. It carried a pen drawing of a trial taking place in New York City, 350 miles away. I'd never been to New York, and I never wanted to go, except maybe to see the Statue of Liberty. I started to flip the page over, but as I did, my attention was caught by the eyes of one of the figures in the drawing, a boy, one of seven boys on trial for murder. The artist had caught such a look of bewilderment and hatred and despair in his features that I opened the magazine wide again to get a closer look. As I did, I began to cry. What's the matter with me, I said aloud, impatiently brushing away a tear. I looked at the picture more carefully. The boys were all teenagers. They were, mem they were members of a gang called the Dragons. Beneath their picture was the story of how they had gone into Highbridge Park in New York and brutally attacked and killed a 15-year-old polio victim. The story revolted me. It turned my stomach. In our little mountain town, such things seemed mercifully unbelievable. That's why I was dumbfounded by a thought that suddenly sprang into my head, full-blown, as though it had come from into me from somewhere else. Go to New York City and help those boys. I laughed out loud. Me go to New York City, a country preacher, barge into a situation he knows less than nothing about. Go to New York City and help those boys. The thought was still there, vivid as ever, apparently independent of my own feelings and ideas. I'd be a fool. I, I know nothing about kids like that, and I don't want to know anything. It was no use. The idea would not go away. I was to go to New York, and furthermore, I was to go at once while the trial was still in progress. In order to understand what a complete departure such an idea was for me, it is necessary to know that until I turned that page of the magazine, mine had been a very predictable life, predictable but satisfying. The Little Mountain Church, which I served in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania, had grown slowly but steadily. We had a new church building, a new parsonage, a swelling missionary budget. We were happy in Phillipsburg. The life of a country preacher suited me perfectly. And then, to summarize what happened, he was challenged, he just felt convicted that he should spend the, the two hours every night that he, he usually was just in front of the TV watching the news after his family had gone to bed, that he should spend that time in prayer. And, you know, this was kind of his, his me time, you know, he was busy all day and his family went to bed and he could just relax in front of the TV and watch the news. And, you know, his excuse was like, well, I just need to relax and unwind and I want to keep up with cultural events by watching news. And God convicted him and said, what if he were to use those two hours in prayer? And he didn't really want to... He didn't really know if God was speaking to him, and he didn't kind of want it to be God's voice. So he said, okay, God, I'll put out a fleece. I'll put out a test. If this is really you, I'm going to put an ad to sell my television set. This is before computers and the internet and all that. All, all they had was the TV. And he said, I'm going to put an ad for the, for, to sell it in the paper. And if somebody calls within, I think it was like the first 10 minutes of the paper being out, published, then I'll know, you know, somebody wants to buy it that quickly. And his wife was like, I don't think you really want this to be God because you're not giving it hardly any time, you know? And he's like, yeah, well, we'll just see what happens. And, and apparently what happened was the moment that the paper hit the, you know, people's front porches that day, he got a phone call saying I, somebody wanted to buy his television set. And they said, he said, don't you want to see it first? And he's like, nope. And he's like, I'll just pay full price. I'll come pick it up in like 30 minutes. So he sold this TV and he, he said, okay, I, I guess that was God's 
speaking to me, I'm going to use that time every night instead of watching the news. Now that I don't have a TV, I will be praying. And that was when he happened to see that picture in the magazine about these boys during one of his prayer times. So he wrote this, my life has not been the same since. Every night at midnight, instead of flipping through some dials, I stepped into my office, closed the door, and began to pray. It was during one of those late evenings of prayer that I picked up Life magazine. I sat down in my brown leather swivel chair and with a pounding heart, as if I were on the verge of something bigger than I could understand, I opened the magazine. A moment later, I was looking at a pen drawing of seven boys and tears were streaming down my face. Just that one step of obedience to step away from what was normal and say, okay, God, I'm willing to use this time in prayer. And God gave him that burden. And the story of how he ended up in New York City connecting with those boys is really hilarious because he went without having a clue what he was doing and he got himself into a really embarrassing situation where a reporter took his picture and he was like holding up a Bible and he looked like this wild-eyed, crazy, you know, preacher. And he was, he was thrown out of the courtroom because he was trying to you know, reach these boys and they didn't want him in there and stuff. And so then he just sort of went to where the gangs were and all of these gang boys knew him as someone that the police didn't like and the courts didn't like and, you know, the papers didn't like. And so he was kind of an outcast. So they just connected with him. They were like, hey, those people don't like us either. So we can, you know, we can connect with you. We listen to what you have to say. And so even though he wasn't able to reach the boys that were in that trial, there were hundreds of other boys just like them that he was able to connect with and not having a clue what he was doing, but just being led by God, he was able to begin and grow one of the most powerful and unlikely missions works in modern times. And that was a simple country preacher transforming the lives of thousands of violent and troubled gang members in inner city New York. So his story is in the book Crossing the Switchblade, and it's truly truly astounding. Young boys who were completely addicted to violence and drugs were set free by the power of the gospel, and many of them came became vessels for spreading the gospel in the midst of the inner city gangs. And that's all because of one man's simple obedience to God. These are legendary stories in, in recent Christian history. They're hard to summarize because there's so much depth to each one, but the power of what God did through both of those situations, it's really something to take note of. And like I said earlier, a lot of us default into thinking that Christians like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and David Wilkerson are unusual or they're special or they're uniquely, uniquely qualified to make this really big impact on the world. When we hear stories like these, I, I know I've had this thought, that's good for them. I admire them, but I could never do something like that. I mean, if you hear the violence of the Warani people, if you hear about the violence and the drug addiction and all the problems of the inner city gangs in New York City, the immediate thought is that somebody more qualified should go there and do that. That's great that there are people out there who can reach them, but it's not going to be me. And then we, we tend to excuse ourselves from that kind of radical Christianity because we assume that it's not something we are called to or equipped for or able to do. But in God's pattern, there is a very critical truth that we need to understand, and that is this. There are no special Christians, only faithful Christians. Each of us have been called by God to impact the world for his glory. We don't need special qualifications to bear eternal fruit for, through our lives. We only need a heart fully surrendered to Jesus Christ and faith in our mighty and faithful God. 
as Hudson Taylor said, which is so well-spoken, all God's giants have been weak men or women who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. It wasn't because they were specially qualified or unusually gifted, but they reckoned on God being with them. Gladys Elward, who transformed China for the glory of God, was a simple parlor maid from England. At the end of her life, she said this, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done for China. I don't know who it was. It must have been a man, a well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Elward, and God said, well, she's willing. I want to take a fresh look at the calling that God has placed on our lives, not for those special Christians out there in our minds, but for each one of us. These are, these are messages in Scripture that are meant for each of us personally. Jesus said in John 15, 16, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And in Romans 12.1, we're told to resent our bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. The outflow of abiding in Christ is not to just enjoy his spiritual benefits for ourselves, but to bear eternal fruit through our lives. Jesus says in John 4.35, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. In Mark 16.15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And in Matthew 28.19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. We need to take seriously the fact that we have been commissioned by the Most High God to build his kingdom, to go into all the world, to preach his gospel, to shine his light in the midst of the darkness, and to make a difference that will last for eternity. And this goes beyond sitting in church and attending Bible studies. We are called, each of us, to change the world for his glory. It's going to look different for each of us. We're not all called to the Warani people. We're not all called to the gangs in inner city New York, but we are all called to change this world for the glory of God. Are we willing to respond to that call? We need to stop looking at our spiritual heroes as special Christians, but recognize that God wants us to become the Christian heroes of this generation. A lot of times people look around and they're like, well, where are the Christian heroes of today? Those were, that must have been, you know, for different generations. But he's calling us to step into that role in this generation. And this message is all about embracing that call to become faithful Christians. Here are a few key principles that I'm going to share with you that always, I feel, will mark the life of a faithful Christian. These are qualities that each one of us can embrace, and we don't have to be special Christians or uniquely gifted or uniquely educated in order to embrace these qualities. The first one is to be expectant and available. I feel like there are two different ways we can wake up and approach every day. The first one is to just go through the motions of the day on autopilot, doing our own thing, making our own decisions without any real expectations for God's spirit to lead us or speak to our hearts or reach others through us. Corrie Ten Boom was such a great example to me in this because she never woke up approaching her day on autopilot. If you read her book, Tramp for the Lord, about her missionary journeys all around the world, every single moment of every single day she was available to God, from the hotel maid who would come to her room, that was a divine opportunity, to the customs officials at the airport, that was a divine opportunity, to the taxi driver taking her to a speaking event, that was a divine opportunity. She had this expectancy and this availability, and therefore God powerfully worked through her both on and off the stage. 
The other way we can approach our day is like Corey Ten Boom, to wake up every day with an expectant heart to tune our ears to his still small voice and make ourselves fully available to him. Some of you have heard me tell the story of Elizabeth Fry, who was a Quaker woman, and she was in, in England, and she just began praying that prayer every day, Lord, how, would, how can I serve you today? And God led her to a prison down the road, Newgate Prison, where the women were being treated as animals. She began to minister them to them and share the gospel with them. And soon she became the greatest prison reformer of history because she simply woke up with that expectancy. Here's a practical step to keep in mind. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So throughout your day, be aware of the divine appointments that he is placing in your path and the unique prayer burdens he's placing on your heart. You know, we look at a verse like Ephesians 2.10 and think, oh, it's good works. I don't want to live my Christianity based on works. What he's talking about here are things that, opportunities that he's planted in each and every day that await each of us as children of God. And so often we don't see them because our phone is in our face or we're just too caught up in our own little world to notice those divine opportunities. So keep in mind that he wants to give you those divine opportunities, but you have to have that expectant heart. And don't forget that no step of obedience is, is insignificant, no matter how small it may seem at first. David Wilkerson selling his TV, he probably never thought that that would lead to one of the most amazing and global life-changing ministries of the modern time to reach these these young people for Christ. But it was just that one step of obedience that God used. As we see in, in the lives of so many Christians throughout history, God can turn one simple yes, Lord, into fruit that will last for eternity. And if you look at most of the Christian heroes that we, that we study, that we quote all the time here at Ellerslie, that's how it began, with one simple step of obedience. And God multiplied that into fruit that lasted for eternity. Secondly, spend time on what matters. God has entrusted us with the precious gift of time, 24 hours in every day, seven days in every week, and every day is significant, every hour is important, every moment is valuable to God. We need to ask ourselves the question, how many of those moments are being spent on things that matter in light of eternity? Here's the key truth. As Christians, we often lose sight of the sacred calling that he has given us to build his kingdom because we are too preoccupied by temporal pleasures and distractions of this earthly life. In order to fulfill God's call upon us, we have to be purposeful about having an eternal mindset. If you study and read about Jim Elliott and those other men, they had such an internal, eternal perspective that giving up their lives to reach these people seemed like it wasn't a big deal to them because they had an eternal perspective. They knew that this world was not their home. And Jim Elliott wrote this before his death. Live every day as if the Son of Man were at the door and gear your thinking to that fleeting moment. Just how can it be redeemed? How can the moments of our day be redeemed? And he says, walk as if the next step would carry you across the threshold of, of heaven. If you knew that in the next breath you're going to be standing before the throne, the throne of God, how would that change your decisions and the way you're spending your time? Being eternally minded is what enables us to recognize those God assignments, those divine appointments that he has prepared in advance for us to walk in, instead of constantly being distracted by the noise of the culture. 
So here's a practical step. Prayerfully consider how you can spend more of your time on what's truly important in light of eternity. It might mean replacing some of your entertainment or social media time with purposeful times of prayer and studying God's word. It could mean using more of your free time to share Christ with non-believers in your community or maybe even in your own home. Whatever God pinpoints, be willing by his grace to replace a temporary focus with an eternal one. And Eric and I have some experience with that. We, we were in ministry for years and just kind of using our free time to veg out, zone out, binge watch things just to kind of decompress. And God challenged us to use some of that time to go deeper with him, to pray. And sometimes we would have all night prayer times and the, the difference in our spiritual walk, the difference in our relationship with Christ was night and day when we began to gain that more eternal focus. And that's even being in ministry. It's even possible to be in ministry and not really have an eternal focus, as we discovered. But everything we do here at Ellerslie is an outflow of making that decision to say, Lord, I want to live with eternity's values in view and not just get distracted by the noise of the culture. So whatever God pinpoints, be willing by his grace to replace the temporary focus with an eternal one. Three, step out of your comfort zone. I heard Don Richardson give a message once where he talked about a woman he knew who was in her 70s, and she had come to Christ later in life. And so she was already in her mid-70s, and so she felt like, I want to serve God, but I'm already kind of at the you know, the last few decades of my life, and I don't, I don't have a lot of experience in ministry, and I don't really know what to do. And she went to her pastor, and she said, could I teach Sunday school? And he just felt like it's probably not the best fit. These rambunctious kids and the 70-plus-year-old woman, just probably not the best combination. But he said, go home and pray that God would open an opportunity for you. Just make yourself available to him and be willing to step out of your comfort zone, whatever God brings to you. So she was trimming the bushes outside her house, and this Chinese exchange student happened to walk by. She lived near a university. And they struck up a conversation about her flowers. She invited him in for like lemonade and cookies, and she found out that he had been in the States as an exchange student for over a year, and no American had ever invited him to their home. And he was so blessed by that, and in his culture, they were trained to respect older people. So he was really interested in her life story and what she had to say. She was able to share the gospel with him, and she invited him to come back the next week and bring friends. And pretty soon, she had a weekly ministry to over 50 Chinese foreign exchange students, just simply from stepping out of her comfort zone and saying, Lord, I'm available to you. And so that, you know, so, so often we think I've got to be doing something. I've got to go out there and find an opportunity. A lot of times God brings the opportunities to us when we're willing to get outside of our comfort zone and say, Lord, I'm available. So here's a practical step. Remember that what God calls us to, he equips us for. Next time he places a kingdom opportunity in front of you, don't let fear or insecurity keep you from embracing it. When we remain dependent on him, we can be confident that he will give us the wisdom, the courage, and the grace that we need to rise up to that challenge. I can guarantee you if that 75-year-old woman had been told you're going to minister to 50 Chinese foreign exchange students, she would have been very intimidated, but she leaned on the grace of God and she had everything she needed. Many of those students came to Christ. And lastly, awaken to the mission fields around you. Eric and I have had two different times in our ministry when we were pretty convinced we were supposed to go overseas to the mission field. And the first time was early in our marriage when we were training to be medical missionaries. Eric had been through pre-med, and I was thinking about getting a nursing degree, and we thought we'd go somewhere on the mission field and be medical missionaries. And then 
God redirected us. We wrote this little book about our love story and people started to invite us all around the country and all around the world to share that. And we really did not want to step into that calling at first. I remember Eric asking me, what if God called us to this, this traveling and speaking ministry, awakening our generation to a better way, God's way. And I, you know, what if he called us to this instead of the mission field? And I, I said, no way. That was my, my immediate thought was, nope, I'm not doing that. Because it was really a dying process to this dream that we had had, you know, glamorous idea of being out on the mission field, to now staying at home and becoming relationship speakers. Did not want to do that. Everybody I knew who spoke on relationships was really weird. And I was like, here, we, we're going to be like them. And God, God just began to work on my heart and on both of our hearts to say yes to the mission field that was right in front of us. The first time we spoke at a larger event, there were 700 teens there, and we just shared our, our story, and we were not very eloquent or articulate, but we did call this group of young people to a higher standard to embrace God's best for their lives, and we challenged them to surrender not just their love life, but every area of their life to God. And I remember... At the end of the message, I was playing the piano kind of like a call, altar call kind of music kind of thing. Eric was giving the final challenge, and I just said, I just want to get out of here. Just get me out of here. I, these kids do not want to hear us. Because when we had first walked in, they were glaring at us. And they didn't, they didn't want to be there. We didn't really want to be there either. But we shared this message. And I remember looking up from the piano and just being totally shocked because almost the entire room was filled with these teens on their faces, weeping and surrendering their lives to Christ. And I began to recognize God does have a calling for us here. And there is a mission field right in front of us. And I don't want to say no to the calling of God in my life just because I have my idea of what this is supposed to look like. And God used that and many other things to change our heart. And that is the mission field that we stepped into for a whole season of our life. The second time we were pretty convinced that God wanted us to go to the mission field, was just before we started Ellerslie, a few years before we started Ellerslie, we were kind of feeling like it was time to come off the road and off of touring, and we thought maybe we'd go to South America and become full-time missionaries. We were really focused on how that would work and what we could do there. And as we were praying and sort of researching and kind of making plans, one of our prayer times, God gave us a scripture, both of us, this very clear scripture from Revelation. It was Revelation 3, 2, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. And both of us instantly knew that this was God speaking to us, that we were called to the church in America, in the Western world, to strengthen that which remained that was ready to die, the weak church around us that we were called to pour strength into the church. And that's where the we began to recognize we were called to start Ellerslie. And so both of those times, we were very willing to go, and it seemed more spiritual to go, and God said, stay. Sometimes God says go. He says, leave everything and go, and sometimes God says, wait, I have a mission field for you right there. I think it's very important that we awaken to the mission field that is all around us because it's easy to categorize missionaries as special Christians who are living the missionary life overseas, not realizing we're standing in the middle of a mission field no matter where we are. We often over-spiritualize the idea of going overseas as missionaries, seeing gospel work on foreign soil as more valid than gospel work here at home. But in reality, gospel work is vital in both places. And whether we're called to go or to stay, living with a missionary mindset is our calling as Christians. Some of you know the story of, of George Mueller, 
famous uh, orphanage director in Bristol, England in the mid-1800s who ran his orphanage completely on faith and was an amazing man of God. But the way that that ministry started, he was preparing to go to Baghdad to reach the lost. His brother-in-law was a missionary in Baghdad and he was all geared up to go. And one day he was walking through the streets, these dirty back streets in Bristol, England, which is where he was a preacher. And this little girl came up to him who was clothed in rags. She had a little boy on her back and she was like a little street urchin beggar and she asked for a shilling. And he had been around children like this for years, but he had never really seen them. And all of a sudden, God opened his eyes to see these children for the first time. And he gave this little girl a shilling and suddenly his heart was overflowing with God's burden for these children who were on the streets. This was a time when plagues would would wipe out huge portions of the population. So there were all these orphans with no one to care for them. And he recognized that day that he was standing in the middle of a mission field. And so he began to reach out to those children right in front of him. And the fruit of his ministry, just to summarize his life's work, he took full responsibility for over 10,000 orphans during his lifetime. He provided so many educational opportunities for underprivileged children that he was accused by some of raising the poor above their natural station in British life. He established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 children all because he said yes to the mission field that was right in front of him. And we need to recognize this. In our godless society, we are standing among some amazing amazing mission fields. Do we have eyes to see them? A life-changing prayer, and this is something that I shared in my spiritual fervor message, is this. Lord, give me eyes to see what you see. That is one of the ways that we can awaken to the mission fields around us. George Mueller saw the street children for the first time when he prayed that prayer. David Wilkerson saw the inner city gang boys the way God saw them when he prayed that prayer. Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the others saw the Warani people the way God saw them when they prayed that prayer. What mission fields does God want to open your eyes to today? And are you willing to see them? I want to finish with this quote from William Booth. If you heard the spiritual fervor message, this will be familiar to you. Convicts me every time I read it. He was the one who started the Salvation Army along with his wife, Catherine. And what was really fascinating about the way the Salvation Army started is that in England in that time, there were two groups in London. There was the East End and the West End. And the West End was where the wealthy Christians, the comfortable Christians lived. And they had their nice houses and their servants and they went to church on Sundays and everything was proper and nice in their life. And they kind of ignored the fact that the East End of London was just filled with destitute and starving children and dying people and people who were addicted to alcohol and prostitution. And he and his wife and those who joined them in their work went to the East End and said, this is where our mission field is going to be. And he was always challenging the fashionable Christians of the West End to recognize that they were actually called to pour their lives out for the glory of God, not to just protect their own comforts. And yet so many of them said, I'm not called to that. That's good that you're called to that. You're a special Christian. And here's what he said to that. Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. 
And then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. So powerful. We are all called to change the world for the glory of God by being faithful with what he's put right in front of us. So let's stop saying that changing the world for the glory of God, living the life that Jim Elliott lived and David Wilkerson lived, is only for special Christians. Let's remember that in God's kingdom, there are no special Christians, only faithful Christians. And by God's grace, may we be counted among the faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to be faithful Christians, and we know that it is only possible by the enabling grace of God. Lord, I pray that we would not put boundaries and limitations upon what you can do through our lives. The enemy may tell us we are weak and we're not qualified and we have too many of our own issues and get us distracted with the cares of this life and the noise of the culture, but I pray that we would respond to your call to change this world for your glory by taking one step of obedience at a time. And I pray that you would show each one of us exactly what that step of obedience is and that you would place within us by your grace hearts of willingness and availability. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.